Brother Chairman, my dear brethren and sisters, before we commence the subject matter of, of this evening, I was handed a question just before the commencement of the meeting this out this evening, which we'll endeavour to answer first. The question is not directly related to that which we've dealt with up to the present time, but it relates to Matthew chapter 2 and verse 23, where in that verse we read, And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. He shall be called a Nazarene. The question is, what prophet spoke these words? I don't believe that that verse is referring to the particular statement of any one prophet. We notice that the words say that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. He shall be called a Nazarene. I believe it's a general statement concerning the teaching of the prophets concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. We're told in that verse that Joseph and Mary on returning from Egypt came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth. Nazareth was a city that was despised by the Jews. The Jews of Jerusalem said, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? They said at one time, Search and see, but no prophet comes from Nazareth. And anyone that came from that region of Galilee and Nazareth was despised by the Jews of Jerusalem. And of course I believe it, uh, 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 the, the point is that the prophets in general spoke concerning the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ would be despised by the Jewish people. Isaiah 53 is an example in case, Psalm 22, Psalm 69 is another. So I believe it's a general statement concerning the teaching of the prophets concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, that he would be one who was despised by the Jewish people. It's interesting also that the name Nazareth is derived from the Hebrew word Netzar, which means a branch. And we find that word used concerning the Lord Jesus Christ in Isaiah 11 and verse 1. Uh, it's used also in the prophecy of Zechariah, the prophecy of Ezekiel and the prophecy of Jeremiah concerning the Lord Jesus Christ as being uh, a branch. And so I believe that those are the things that the prophet, that, the, um, that Matthew is referring to there, those general statements spoken by the prophet that he shall be called a Nazarene. So I don't believe the verse is referring to any one particular statement that we find in the writings of any one prophet. So we hope that answers the question. And now we'll proceed with the subject matter for this evening. First of all, we come now to consider the life of the Lord Jesus Christ as set forth in the Gospel of Luke. And Luke, of course, in his first chapter, deals not so much with the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, he deals with that work of preparation that Yahweh engaged upon preparing the scene for the later ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we have here, a prepared here, a, an analysis of Luke chapter 1. We suggest this... Uh, as an analysis of Luke chapter 1, we see from the top, verses 1 to 4, Luke gives us an introduction to his gospel. We briefly considered that introduction on our last class. Verses, then from there on we can divide the chapter into four more further main divisions. Verses 5 to 25, those verses that we read this evening, concern the promise and the begettle of John. But we can subdivide that into a third further subdivision. Verses 5 to 10 introduce to us the parents of John. Verses 4 to 11 outline the drama in the holy place. Verses 15 to 17, the angel Gabriel foretells to Zechariah the details of John's ministry. In verses 18 to 23, Zechariah seeks a sign and he's given a sign, he's smitten dumb until the child is born. Verses 24 to 25, 
we read of the conception of John the Baptist. The next we have the main division, verses 26 to 56. Gabriel visits Mary. We find that that section can be further subdivided into verses 26 to 33. The birth of the Lord Jesus Christ foretold. Verses 34 to 37, Mary's question, how is it all going to come to pass? And verse 38 is the confession of Mary's belief in the words of the angel Gabriel. Section number 4, verses 39 to 56. The two selected mothers rejoice. Verse 39, Mary visits Elizabeth. We find Mary engaging on a journey of some considerable distance, possibly a hundred miles, to visit her cousin Elizabeth. Verses 42 to 45 outline Elizabeth's greeting. Verses 46 to 55, Mary's song of joy in response to Elizabeth's greeting. And verse 56 tells us that Mary returns home to Nazareth. But I don't believe she returned home to Nazareth until she'd actually seen the birth of John the Baptist. She'd seen that babe born. She'd probably held it in her own arms. She probably tarried long enough at the home of Zacharias to hear that glorious sound of Zacharias roll from his lips. And then she went upon her journey back to Nazareth to break the news to Joseph that she herself was now three months with child. And finally, in verses... Um, well, that, we, we, we've overlapped now into the next section. But verses 57 to 80 record the birth of John. I believe that Mary was still in the house of Zacharias and Elizabeth when that event happened. She, that, those verses record the birth of John. Verses 57 to 66 record the actual birth. Verses 67 to 79, Zacharias, a prophetic psalm that rolled from his lips when his, his tongue was loose. And then uh, at verse 79, we believe after that event, Mary returned to Nazareth and verse 80 tells us of John's growth. So that's the outline of Luke chapter 1. That's the chapter that we are now going to commence to consider. And in verse 5 of Luke chapter 1, we read, There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias, of the course of Abiah, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. In the days of Herod, the king of Judea. And what a picture those words paint for us, brethren and sisters. In the days of Herod, the king of Judea. The Herods were not Jews. Herod was an Idumean. The Idumean Idumea was a little territory to the southeast of the kingdom of Judah. And about 125 BC, the Idumea was conquered by the Jews. The Jews conquered the, 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 the kingdom of Idumea. They took the Idumeans, as it were, captive. They compelled them to submit to Jewish religion and they became a subject people to the Jewish nation. But you see, we go down 125 years through history and we read here in verse 5 of Luke chapter 1, there was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, that strangers that dwelt among them, had risen up and now had the ruling position over that nation. And you know those Herods who ruled that nation of Judah for many, many years. The influence of the Herods was, was uh, over a considerable period of time. Now we've outlined here a... ...family of the Herods. Not that we want to deal a lot of time on, on Herods. There's far better people in this chapter to concern ourselves with this evening. But to give us some idea of the extent of the influence of the family of the Herods over the kingdom of Judah throughout the period of New Testament history. We have Herod the Great wasn't the first of the Herods, incidentally. The family goes back a couple of generations before him. But Herod the Great is the king that was on the throne, mentioned here in verse 5 of Luke chapter 1. 
He was the king reigning in Jerusalem at the time of the birth of John and the birth of John the Baptist. Now here's an outline of the family. Herod the Great was the king. Herod the Great actually had ten wives. We've only listed four of them because it is from those four wives that his children came that that, that, uh, attended the ruling position over the Jews. We had his first wife, this was his favourite wife, that Marianne I. She produced uh, Aristobulus. She also produced another son, or other sons, another one by the name of Antipater. Aristobulus and Antipater were murdered at the, at the um, command of Herod the Great just prior to his own death. Marianne I suffered the same fate. So did her mother. The hot, the, all of those were murdered. We have Marianne II with another of his wives. He produced Philip I. Now that Philip is mentioned in the scriptures, it seems that he never actually had a throne. But he's mentioned in the scriptures because he married Herodias. You'll notice Herodias is mentioned down here. Herodias was actually the daughter of Philip's half-brother. He was his niece, but he married her. You see, but, uh, uh, and so he was from this wife. From Manifest over there, we find Archelos, uh, and Antipas. Now they were two prominent Herods that, fight, that figure in the pages of the New Testament. Archelaus reigned over Judah after the death of Herod the Great. But he, produ- he, he proved to be a worse tyrant than Herod the Great was. In Matthew 2 and verse 22 we find that, that, that when Joseph, who had fled down to Egypt because of Herod the Great's command to slay all the young children of Bethlehem, when he heard, it says in verse 22, when he heard that Archelaus did reign in Judea in the room of, of his father Herod, he was afraid to go hither. And he had good reason to be too, because Archelaus was a worse tyrant uh, 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 than, Herod, than his father was. In fact, in 6 AD, Archelaus had so disgraced the throne of Judea that the Romans moved in and moved him out of the place and put a Roman governor in control of Judah. Antipas, his brother, reigned over Galilee and Perea. He took Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. He was the one that had John the Baptist beheaded. He's the one that's referred to as that spot by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he reigned in Galilee until... um, uh, until after the, the days of the Lord Jesus Christ and John the Baptist. And then finally, from another wife, Cleopatra, Philip, she gave birth to Philip II. He's the king that's mentioned in Luke chapter 3 and verse 1. He reigned over the region east of the Jordan. In Luke chapter 3 and verse 1, this is, we find that Philip II is reigning. This is some 25 or 30 years after Herod the Great. And, and he is mentioned there as Herod, the Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Iturea, and of the region of Trachonitis, uh, and so forth. He reigned east of the Jordan. Now we find that when those rulers finally passed off the sea, their children didn't get the throne. Their children, their, we find the thrones went to, to the sons of Aristobulus. Herod's grandchildren, Aristobulus, was murdered by his own father. But now his children are coming to the sea. And Agrippa I reigned over Judea. We find him mentioned in Acts chapter 12, verse 1 and verse 23. And he died in 44 AD, as is recorded in that chapter of the book of Acts. His son, Agrippa II, is mentioned in Acts 25, verse 13. And Bernice and Drusilla also mentioned in the book of Acts, were his sisters. And so we see that the family of the Herods had great influence over the kingdom of of Judah. Now that that, uh, outline of the family of the Herods is found in the book, the guidebook of the Gospels for anyone that wants to look at it more closely. We find then that the Herods were not Jews. They were Idumeans. And although Herod the Great proved a very able ruler in many ways, he was a, very, a brilliant military leader, he did many works for the Jewish people, 
he rebuilt their temple so that they could carry out their worship and so on and so forth. Nevertheless, the overall character of, of his days were days of political intrigue, days of bloodshed and cruelty. One writer describes Herod the Great in this way. He says he was a tyrant who bathed his own house and his own people in blood. He says the demons of Herod's life were jealousy of power and suspicion its necessary companion. Further in his article he writes, he was the incarnation of brute lust which in turn became the burden of the lives of his children. History tells of few more immoral families than the house of Herod by which intermarriage of its members so entangled the genealogical tree as to make it a veritable puzzle. Edershine in his life and times of, of, of Jesus the Messiah writes concerning the end of the reign of Herod the Great. He said, so ended a reign almost unparalleled for reckless cruelty and bloodshed in which the murder of the innocent in Bethlehem formed but a trifling, formed so trifling an episode among the many deeds of blood as you have seen not deserving of record on the page of the Jewish historian. He writes on, he says, but we can understand the feelings of the people towards such a king. They hated the Idumeans. They detested his semi-heathen reign. They abhorred his deeds of cruelty. The king had surrounded himself with foreign counsellors, was protected by foreign mercenaries from Thracia, Germany and Gaul. So long as he lived, no woman's honour was safe, no man's life secure. An army of all powerful spies pervaded Jerusalem. Nay, the king himself was said to stoop to that office. And so on he writes. Now there's this little extract to give us some picture of the days of Herod. They were days of political intrigue. You know, there were days in which Bible prophecy was being fulfilled. We go back to the book of Deuteronomy. Back in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 28. And verses 43 and 44. We read Moses' prophecy of those curses that would have come upon that nation if they failed to, to heed the, the principles of Yahweh's law. He says, uh, The stranger that is within thee shall get up above thee very high, and thou shalt come down very low. He shall lend to thee and thou shalt not lend to him. He shall be the head, and thou shalt be the tail. You see, that was a prophecy of circumstances that would befall the Jewish nation. And as we look at Judah in the days of Herod, of Herod king of Judea, as outlined there in Luke chapter 1, those are the very days we're looking at. Days when the stranger that was among them had gone up very high above them and they came down very low and the Herods did get up very high above them they ruled that nation with power and with cruelty you know in his work um, sketches of Jewish life uh, sketches of Jewish social life in the days of, of, of Christ Edershine points out that the income of the average labouring man in those days based upon Matthew chapter 20 and verse 2 was a denarius a day. Uh, Edershine, who as we know wrote many years ago, says that in, in the currency of his day that would be about eightpence. About eightpence a day in, in, in his currency. That means eightpence a day, labouring for six days a week, 48 pence a week. About five shillings a week. There's four weeks in a month. That's about two pounds a month. There's 13 four-week months in a year. That's about £26 a year the average labouring man would earn. But do you know what Herod's income was? 
Herod's income he said to be 680,000 pounds a year that was the income of Herod the Great 680,000 pounds a year when a laboring man laboured six days a week he got about 26 pounds a year indeed the stranger that was among them had gone up very high above them Deuteronomy says he'll lend to you you won't lend to him who had need to lend anything to Herod you see and so it was a fulfilment of Bible prophecy and we're looking at and as we look at that statement there was in the days of Herod the king of Judea we're being shown one of the darkest hours of Judah's history both politically and socially they were days of, uh, of, um, of oppression where the stranger had got up very high above them. The Roman, uh, Romans themselves also were, were in domination over that land. There were the hated tax gatherers throughout that land. Men were employed as agents of the Roman power. They had to forward to Rome a certain sum for every person. But how much more over and above that sum they exacted went into their own pockets. They were hated, they were, they were days of, of social injustice and inequality. And we look at the religious condition of that nation at that time. We don't have to look very far of course. The, the statements of the Lord Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 12 and verse 1 where he, he warns the people to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Matthew chapter 23 uh, give us an ample picture of the condition of, 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 of um, the, the religious world in the days of Judea at that time Matthew chapter 23 just to look at a couple of quotes Matthew chapter 23 and verse 13 but woe unto you scribes and Pharisees hypocrites for ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men for ye neither go in yourselves neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in verse 25 woe unto you scribes and Pharisees for ye make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter but within they are full of extortion and excess verse 28 even so ye outwardly appear righteous unto men but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity that's the character of the religious world in the days of Christ. And you know, that was a fulfilment of prophecy too. We come back to the prophecy of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 2. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 2. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground he shall have no form or comeliness and when we shall see him there is no beauty that ye should desire him he shall drop, grow up as a root out of a dry ground and as we look at Judea in the days of, um, of the birth of John and the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ indeed they were, it was dry ground the religious, uh, uh, religious constitution of that nation was dead it was dead it was all before men. It was hypocrisy. And it was all before men. You know, Luke chapter 1 is a chapter of contrast. It's a chapter of great contrast. You know, there's a tremendous contrast in verse 5. We've introduced in verse 5 to the days of Herod, king of Judea. But it says, in those days there was a certain priest named Zechariah of the course of Abiah and his wife was of, of the daughter of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth there was a certain priest you know a priest really stood as a representative of what the nation should have been back in Exodus chapter 19 and I think it's verse 6 that night Yahweh spoke to that nation of Israel and he called them that he had chosen them to be a kingdom of priests the whole nation was supposed to be priests before God and the priests, of the, the Aaronic priests were there as representatives of what that nation should have been. And you know here we have two men set before us in verse 5. We have Herod the Great and we have a servant priest called Zechariah. 
You know, Zechariah stood there as a symbol of what that nation should have been. But Herod stood there as an epitome of what that nation was in the sight of Almighty God. Herod was a man who outwardly professed Judaism, but he was a Gentile at heart. Herod was a man who murdered his own children. Later on, the Herods had John the Baptist put to death. You know, we compare that with the Jewish nation. And the religion of the Jewish nation was all outward. But they were Gentiles at heart. They were meticulous over washings and so on and so forth. They were Gentiles at heart, just like Herod was. Now Herod murdered his own children. But that nation said, His blood be upon us and upon our children. And they brought the tragedy of AD 70 upon the generation of their own children. Herod at a later time had John the Baptist beheaded because John had told him he was an adulterer. The Jewish people murdered the Son of God because he revealed to them that they were spiritual adulterers. And there in that man Herod, Yahweh had raised up a man that was an epitome in everything what that nation really was. But there in Judea at that time also was a certain priest. And I believe that that priest stands there as a symbol of what that nation should have been at that time. You know, Zacharias, his name means Yahweh hath remembered or remembrance of Yahweh. He was a priest of the course of Abijah. Abijah it is here, but back in the First of Chronicles 24, it's Abijah. And Abijah means Yahweh is a father. And he was married to Elizabeth, which means the oath of God. Here was a priest. He acknowledged Yahweh as his father. He remembered Yahweh in all his ways. That's made quite clear from verse 6. And he was married to the oath of God. And he waited for a son. And everything that nation should have been doing at that time. They should have realised that Yahweh was their father. They were Yahweh's firstborn son on a national basis. They should have remembered Yahweh in all their ways. They should have been married in their minds to the covenants of promise that God had delivered unto that nation. And they should have been patiently waiting for the provision of that seed that son who could bring all those promises to pass. But you see, the nation really was being represented by Herod and not by that certain priest by the name of Zechariah. Now we're told in that verse that this man, Zechariah, a priest, was of the course of a buyer. When we go back to 1 Chronicles chapter 24, and verse 10 we read in this 24th chapter of the way in which David divided up the sons of Aaron and appointed them to minister in the temple service and he divided them into 24 orders or courses and we find in um, there in the uh, uh, just lost the verse 10. We find there in verse 10 that Abijah is mentioned. The seventh went to Hakol, the eighth to Abijah. And so the course of Abijah was the eighth course. Eight in itself, of course, is an interesting number. The number associated with circumcision. The number associated with a new beginning. And Zechariah was of that course of Abijah. And he ministered in the temple um, uh, 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 when the course of Abijah uh, it, it came their turn. And we read of him there that he was married, that his wife was of the daughters of Aaron also. So here was Zechariah of the family of Aaron. He was a priest. Here was Elizabeth of the daughters of Aaron. And so both the husband and wife were direct descendants from Aaron. And in verse 6 we read, And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. Notice how they're both linked together as one. They were both righteous 
before God. And what a statement that is, brethren and sisters. We look at the religious state of that nation. Outwardly righteous, but inwardly full of dead men's bones. You know, we learn from Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6, speaking of the religious leaders of the day, the Lord Jesus Christ says in verse 2, Therefore when thou doest thine arms, do not sound a trumpet before thee as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. Verse 5, when thou prayest, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand, love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. And the whole religion of that nation was before men. The Lord Jesus Christ said of, said of them, they, they draw near with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Their whole religion was an outward display before men. But you see, here's a contrast. There was in that nation a certain priest. And he was righteous. He and his wife were righteous before God. They weren't concerned about what other people thought of them. They were concerned about doing what was right in the sight of Yahweh. And they were both righteous before God. You see, that means they were true children of Abraham. Now we go back to the 15th chapter of the book of Genesis. And we read of the basis of Abraham's righteousness before God. Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. And he believed in Yahweh and he counted it to him for righteousness. Now Yahweh has just made an outstanding promise to him. He says, um, verse 4, And behold, the word of Yahweh came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars if they'll be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in Yahweh, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Now Yahweh had promised Abraham a seed. It seemed at this time that all the hope of that seed being produced had gone. And, and, and Abraham asked Yahweh, in how is this going to be? And Yahweh takes him forth and says, He that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. Yahweh says, Well, I'm going to provide that seed. And not only am I going to provide that seed, I'm going to multiply that seed into a multitude that no man can number. I'm going to produce a multitude and a family out of Adam's race. It's going to be as the stars of heaven the multitude. And Abraham believed him. Abraham believed him. He, he, he believed that Yahweh had the power to produce the Messiah. And he believed that, he would, that in that Messiah would be invested the power to forgive the sins of a multitude of others who would identify with him. He believed it and Yahweh counted it under him for righteousness. And now we read in Luke chapter 1 and verse 5 of a true son and daughter of Abraham. They were both righteous before God. And we know of course that no man can obtain righteousness before God by the works of law. Zechariah and Elizabeth were a man and a woman of faith. They were a man and a woman who looked for the coming of the Messiah, who believed that Yahweh could provide that Messiah, who believed that that Messiah would be able to cover their sins and incorporate them into that multitude of families that's going to fill this earth with Yahweh's glory in the future age. They were a man and woman of faith. You know, as Zechariah went about his temple ministry, he would have seen the significance in all the things that he was doing. He would have seen the way they were pointing forward to that coming seed. 
He would have seen in it all a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the hopes of that man and woman, that faithful man and woman, would be pinned upon the coming of the Messiah. You see, that was the basis of their righteousness before God. The same basis was what Abraham was righteous before God. And so we learn of Zechariah and Elizabeth. They were an outstanding man and woman of faith. They were both united in their belief in the word of God. They were, they were two people but they were one because they were united in their faith in, the, in Yahweh's word and in the power of Yahweh to accomplish that which he had promised. And so they were both righteous before God. But you see, that verse adds also, they were walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. Not without sin, of course, because no man was able to do that outside of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But it meant that in their way that they, they, they walked in life and their approach to the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, none could raise a finger at them. None could find any fault in them. Like Daniel in the days of old, when they set about finding some fault with him they could bring him down and they couldn't find any fault. Daniel, of course, wasn't a man without sin, but the, those, those uh, uh, presidents could find no fault in that man. And this is the character we find also here in Zacharias and Elizabeth, in the, in the way they conducted their lives, in their approach to the commandments and the ordinances of Almighty God. We find the Apostle Paul makes the same claim concerning himself, or concerning his past life, in Philippians chapter 3 and at verse 6 where he says, concerning zeal, he was persecuting the ecclesia, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless, and it's the same word used. None could find any fault with him in the way that he, he uh, 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 went about his observance of the principles of the Mosaic law. And so we can see from this sixth verse here that Zechariah and Elizabeth were an outstanding man and woman a man and woman of faith, a man and woman of integrity. And you know, when Yahweh's eyes ran up and down through that nation, looking for vessels that he could use in the preparation for the work of and ministry of his son, that was the man and the woman he found. So Yahweh takes notice of those things. Yahweh did take notice that here was a, a, a man and woman motivated by faith. A man and woman endeavouring to uphold his commandments and ordinances in all things. And Yahweh noticed those things and Yahweh chose that man and woman as vessels that he could use. But you see verse 7 says, And they had no child because that Elizabeth was barren and they both were now well stricken in years. They were in old age. They were in old age and they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. And this was the pair that Yahweh chose to use as instruments to prepare the way for the coming of his own son. Concerning that verse, the aspect of Elizabeth's barrenness, Brother Robert Roberts writes in Nazareth Revisited on page 26, right at the middle of the page, page 26, he says, the second point stands out with equal prominence. Here a barren woman is made to provide the Lord's forerunner and a virgin is made the mother of the Lord himself. So a barren woman, past the time of life, gave Isaac the child of promise. A barren woman, Joseph, the chief among the sons of Jacob. A barren woman, Samuel, leader among the prophets. A barren woman, the strongest among men, Samson. Of Yahweh's royal house in the earth. A runaway flock master, uh, Moses. He's made the deliverer of Israel and mediator of the covenant of Sinai. A nation of serfs is made use of to manifest the divine power in the face of all the earth. The principle underlying this mode of procedure is defined prophetically thus. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. Zechariah chapter 4 verse 6. Or apostolically thus, 
that no flesh should glory in his presence. You see, Yahweh was showing that nation really that human power would not provide the forerunners of the Lord. Man couldn't provide the Lord Jesus Christ, neither could he provide the one who would prepare his way. This was the work of Yahweh. It was the work of Yahweh in the nation at that particular time. And so we see that it was the work of Yahweh to provide the Redeemer and his forerunner. We read in, in verse, um, verse 8 that it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course. The order of his course refers to the course of a buyer. The eighth course. And twice in a year it would become the duty of the course of a buyer to minister in that temple. But of course there were many priests of the order of a buyer. It might not be Zachariah's duty on every occasion to be present at that temple. And so we find that, that, that of this particular case, in the course of Abiah, it, it, it became the duty of Zechariah to present himself at the temple, to minister in the temple for a period of one week. And we read in verse 9, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. Now the custom of the day was that the priests that were there gathered to the ministry and the course of a buyer would cast lots to determine what their duties would be on any particular day. It is said that, that, that a priest would only burn incense once in his lifetime. Once he, his lot had fallen for him to burn incense he never did it again. That lot would fall to other priests. If that is right, this was the only occasion in Zechariah's life where he went into that holy place to burn incense. He might have gone in it for other things, but to burn incense would have been the only time in his life. When the priest entered in to, to burn incense before the Lord, initially he would go in with two assistants. There's nothing about this in the scriptures, but this is the custom of the day in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ. He would go in with two assistants, one would remove the ashes from the altar, the other would place fire upon the altar and then they would retire from the holy place and they would leave the officiating priest on his own in the holy place to place the incense upon the fire upon the altar and, uh, and to pray before Yahweh. And so we read from verse 9 that the Lord had fallen for Zechariah to be the one who would burn incense upon the altar of incense in the holy place of the temple on that particular time. We read in verse 10, and the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of incense. Incense was burned morning and evening. We're not told when it was. Possibly it could have been the evening. The fact that there's a crowd of people gathered outside. We don't know. It may have been the morning. It may have been the evening. But in the uh, custom of the day, when the priest entered the holy place to burn the incense, a bell was rung. And that was an indication to all the other priests and Levites that they must take up their positions that had been appointed to them in the temple court. The space between the temple and the altar was cleared and a great silence would come over the people gathered outside who would give themselves over to inward prayer as the priest went in to burn that incense. And so you see verse 10 takes us to that very time. The priests and Levites around the temple are taking up their positions. The two assistants of Zechariah have, have, have retired from the holy place, leaving him in there alone. A great hush comes over the, the assembled people outside as they give themselves over to inward prayer. And Zechariah for the first and last time in his life is there before the altar of incense to burn the incense uh, before Yahweh. And we read in verse 11 that there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. And so as Zechariah approached that altar, he placed the incense upon the altar. The cloud of smoke was rising up from the altar of incense 
And Zechariah was probably humbling himself there in the holy place in the attitude of prayer when suddenly he becomes aware that he's not alone in that holy place. Suddenly he becomes conscious that there's another person there with him at a time when nobody else should be in that holy place. So you see, as he investigates, he sees that it's an angel on the right side of the altar. And we're told there in verse 12 that he was troubled and fear fell upon him. There's two words there in the Greek used to describe the fear that came upon Zechariah. The word troubled is the word tereso. It means to stir up, to agitate. It's used of stirring up water. And so Zechariah became agitated. Probably he became physically trembling as he saw this sight in the holy place. And he says fear, or phobos, which means fear, terror or fright, fell upon him as Zechariah realises there's somebody else in that holy place. And as he sees now that it's an angel of Yahweh standing at the right side of the altar, Zechariah would have entered from the east. As he faced the altar of incense, the right side would be the north side. The north side, speaking of the hidden region. Here was a messenger from the hidden one of the heavens. It was the side also of the table of showbread, where there upon that table the loaves were placed each week. A table which spoke of fellowship. You see, Yahweh was offering grace and fellowship through the work that he was about to perform. But Zechariah didn't understand that at this particular time. And Zechariah, filled with fear and trembling there as he sees this great event take place in the holy place. But in verse 13 we read, But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zechariah, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. And with the utterance of that statement, Four hundred years of silence from heaven was broken. It was four hundred years before any message from heaven, since any message from heaven had come. And that message was through the prophet Malachi. When we turn back to the prophet Malachi, we read of the words of Malachi, the prophet. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. Behold, I will send my messenger and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple. We go over to chapter 4, verses 5 and 34 and 5. The last words spoken by Malachi the prophet, and after these words, 400 years of silence settled over that nation. Behold, for verse 4, Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded under him in Horeb, for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of Yahweh. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children of the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. And with the utterance of those words, four hundred years of silence settled over that nation. But now Zacharias is in the holy place and that silence is broken. And the angel says, Fear not, Zacharias. Thy prayer is heard. And thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son. Thy prayer is heard. Now that's written in the Greek in a timeless, arrowist tense. And apply to any time. The prayer could have been uttered 30 years before. It could still have been being uttered at that particular time. It's timeless. It doesn't pin any particular time on that prayer. But he says to Zechariah, Thy prayer is heard. What has Zechariah prayed for? You know, Luke chapter 1 doesn't tell us. It infers it, but it doesn't tell us what Zechariah had prayed for. We, don't, we know that Zechariah and Elizabeth had no child. Doubtless in their younger days, as the faithful, conscientious priest in Zechariah saw the religious apostasy of the nation around him. You know, in those days, 
It's said there to shine in his life and time that Jesus the Messiah points out that the high priesthood was an office that was purchased with money. It didn't go to the rightful one. It was the one who, who, who paid the most for it. The office was purchased with money. Such was the apostasy of that day. And doubtless this faithful man and woman as they saw these things developing in their younger days, doubtless they prayed for a son that a faithful priest might be there to follow on after Zechariah. But it's most unlikely that a man and woman well stricken in years would still be praying that they might be given a son. They would doubtless have accepted by that time that it wasn't Yahweh's purpose they should have one. They would resolve themselves to that fact. But you think, here was a man and woman of faith that I believe they would have ceased to pray for the coming of the Messiah, recognising that only the Messiah could put things right in that nation. And they would pray doubtless that Yah, the day might come soon when Yahweh would send his son who might be able to straighten out the evils that were being manifested in that nation at that particular time. So in all, it's almost without doubt in their younger days they would have prayed for a son. Probably they had given up praying for a son by the time they'd become well stricken in years. But they would still have been praying that Yahweh might provide the Messiah and that redemption might be brought to Israel through the work of that one, the Messiah. And so their prayers would still have been along that line. You know, and Zechariah, the angel comes to Zechariah and he says, look, your prayer is heard. Yahweh's about to act. The Messiah is soon to be manifested in the midst of Israel. And not only that, your wife Elizabeth is going to bear a son and you'll call his name John. Now Zechariah means remembrance of Yahweh. Elizabeth means the oath of my God. And John means Yahweh is gracious or the grace of Yahweh. You see, when Yahweh is remembered, when the oath of God is, is embraced, then the product is the grace of Yahweh is extended. You know, Yahweh's um, uh, here in the very name, remembrance of Yahweh, or Yahweh has remembered. Despite the apostasy, despite the evils of that nation at that time, Yahweh hadn't forgotten the promises he'd made. Yahweh hadn't forgotten Abraham and the things he'd promised to Abraham. He hadn't forgotten David and the things he'd promised to David. Yeah, that nation was still remembered of Yahweh. Yahweh still remembered the oath that he had made. And we see here in the work he's now performing, he's extending his grace toward that nation. The grace of Yahweh was extended. And now this son John was to be born to this faithful man and woman. Zachariah and Elizabeth. And the angel goes on in verse 14 and says, And thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. Again we find the combination of two Greek words. The angel doesn't say, look, you're you're just going to have joy. He says you're going to have joy, and that word's the word chara in in the Greek, and it means joy. But the word gladness is a word which means exultant joy, exuberant joy. And so, you see, the birth of this son was going to bring extreme joy and rejoicing to Zechariah and Elizabeth. And not only to Zechariah and Elizabeth, it is that many shall rejoice at his birth. Because all who were waiting in that nation for the, for, for the uh, coming of Messiah would rejoice at the birth of the forerunner the birth of John. Now verse 15 says, And he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Now as we said before, Luke chapter 1 is a chapter of contrast. We've got Herod the Great on one hand, we've got Zechariah on the other. We've got the religious circumstances of, of, of Judah on the one hand, all before men, Zacharias righteous before God. We have Herod who was given the title of Herod the Great. But Yah, the angel, angel says to Zechariah, he shall be great in the sight of Yahweh. 
Here was a man who would be truly great. Herod was great in the things of the flesh. He was great in the eyes of man. But here was one who was going to be great in the sight of the Lord. And he says, uh, and so, so he was. We look at Matthew chapter 11 and verse 11. We have the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ concerning this man. Matthew 11 and verse 11. Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. John the Baptist was great. But I don't believe the Lord there is saying that he was greater than all other men that had ever lived. I believe when he says he's great, that there has not risen a greater than John the Baptist. He's referring really to the work that John had to perform. He's not elevating John above Abraham and Moses and David and the prophets and so forth. But he's showing that the work of introducing the Messiah to Israel was the greatest work that had ever been given to mortal man. That was the greatness of John the Baptist. He was given the greatest work that any that are born of women have ever been given. He had the work of preparing the way for the Son of God. He had the work of introducing the Messiah of Israel to, to the people of that time. And so he was great in the sight of the Lord. The verse 15 goes on and says, And he shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. He shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. In other words, he'd be a Nazarite. Numbers chapter 6 and verse 3 points out that the Nazarite, a person who had dedicated themselves to Yahweh, for a certain period of time, throughout the period of their dedication, was to drink no wine or strong drink. Numbers 6 and verse 3. He shall separate himself from wine and strong drink, and shall drink no vinegar of wine or vinegar of strong drink, neither shall he drink any liquor of grapes, nor eat moist grapes or dry. And the Nazarite had to abstain from those things as long as he was under the period of his vow in which he dedicated himself to the service of Yahweh. But John the Baptist was not to drink any through the span of his life. He was a man who was going to be completely dedicated to Yahweh all the days of his life. Now, let me go to Leviticus chapter 10 and verse 9. We find that that statement was also written concerning the priest. Leviticus chapter 10, verse 8. And Yahweh spake unto Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine nor strong drink, thou nor thy son with thee, when ye go into the tabernacle of the congregation, lest ye die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generation. But ye might put a difference and so forth. They might manifest sound judgment was the reason they would abstain from strong wine or strong drink. But all the time they were engaged in the service of Yahweh, they were to abstain from wine and strong drink. And Zechariah, the priest, is told that his son would drink no wine or strong drink all the days of his life. Because he was a man whose entire life was to be given unto Yahweh in priestly service. That's what Zechariah was being told in that, that, that 15th verse of chapter 1. That if you're going to have a son, he's going to be great in the sight of Yahweh because he's going to be one of, given one of the greatest works that mortal man has ever been given. Then he's going to be continually engaged in priestly service before me for the entire span of his life. And, he added in verse 15 there, he shall be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. He was to be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. His entire life was to be moulded by the influence from above. God was going to overshadow him from his birth to prepare him for the great work that was before him. Um, the diaglot does put that word, put that, it doesn't 
removes the word the, it says he shall be filled with a spirit holy from his mother's womb. Uh, whether John actually possessed the gift of the Holy Spirit when he was a tiny little babe um, is, is perhaps questionable. But there's one thing that's sure. As he grew up in that little house in the hill country of Judea with Zechariah and Elizabeth, he grew up in a very different spirit and disposition to the rest of that nation around him. And in those early years of childhood, He's been given very sound training in the things of the truth. We, we, learn, we, we, we learn from the Gospel of John, chapter 10 and verse 41, that John never performed any miracle. He never had any gift of the Holy Spirit as far as miraculous power went. He never healed the sick or, or, or rose the dead or anything like that. John's work was a voice. He came to proclaim the coming of the Messiah. And any Holy Spirit gift that he had was purely in his teaching. And that influence was at work throughout the length and breadth of his life. He was filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. You know, it's interesting sometimes to contemplate the things that are being set before us in some of these verses. You know, we go back to the high priest of Israel. The high priest of Israel had to be one of Aaron's family. He had to be a, a, a son of Aaron. He had to be washed with water before he was inducted into his office. He had to be clothed with certain clothing. He had to be anointed. And then, when he'd been anointed, he became Yahweh's spokesman in the midst of Israel. You know, we look at John the Baptist. His mother, his father was a son of Aaron. His mother was a daughter of Aaron. They were priests. So Zachariah, John was born as a priest. He was a priest. He was a son of Aaron. He was washed with water because the influence from above was working, overshadowing him from the time of his birth. You know, those clothing, of course, of the high priest was typical clothing. Speaking of moral character and so on and so forth. That moral character was manifested in John because on one occasion the Lord Jesus Christ, speaking of John, said, you, he went, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A prophet? He said, yea, I say unto him, more than a prophet, a prophet indeed. He was a man who practised what he preached. He was a man who had put on the, the, those symbolic clothes, those robes, and Yahweh anointed him because he gave him the gift of the Holy Spirit. Yahweh anointed him and Yahweh used him as his spokesman to Israel at that time. You know, he was a natural descendant of Aaron. He could well have, he would have had far more right to the office of high priest than ever Annas or Caiaphas would have. There's nothing surer than Anderson and Caiaphas should never have been high priest. But here was a man who had all the qualifications for that office. And Yahweh used him as his spokesman to Israel. You know, the ironic high, high priests were only typical men. Everything they did was foreshadowing the coming of a greater than they. It was their work to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. It was their work in Israel to direct the attention of Israel to the Messiah, to the seed of Abraham. You know, we look at the work of John. What was the voice that Yahweh cried through John? John, um, John said that, um, uh, John said, uh, uh, He who comes after me is mightier than I. When the Lord Jesus Christ came to him to be baptised, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. And he pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ and directed the people's attention to him. He said, He must increase, but I must decrease. Now here were the words of one who was in the rightful line of Aaron, a rightful representative of the Aaronic priesthood. And he's showing to Israel, Here is the Messiah. And having said that, he disappears off the sea, is removed 
the work of the Aaronic priesthood had been fulfilled. The Messiah was now manifested in the midst of Israel. And I believe that in that, as that angel spoke to John and pointed out in that 15th verse that he was to be great in the sight of the Lord, that his whole life was to be engaged in priestly service before Yahweh, that Yahweh would anoint him with the Holy Spirit. Zachariah is being told that here was the one, here was the one who was going to introduce the Messiah to Israel and then the Aaronic priesthood would be finished and the priest after the order of Melchizedek would be manifested in their place. And may it be, brethren and sisters, that we, from the pages of Yahweh's word, may likewise be directed to the Son of God. May we discern in him the true manner of life that was manifested. May we discern in him the development of the Father's character in mortal flesh, that we might rightly identify ourselves with him, that we might stand with Zechariah, with Elizabeth, and with John, with the Lord Jesus Christ in the age to come.